0: Org. This episode is from the years 2014-16, through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History, and Critique. Enjoy. Hello everyone, this is Pat Ryan again with Childhood, History, and Critique. Now this time I have a conversation with Corrine Field about a recently published book, the Struggle for Equal Adulthood: Gender, Race, Age, and the Fight for Citizenship in Anabellum America from the University of North Carolina Press Field is currently a lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Virginia where she also serves as the director of undergraduate studies for the program in Women, Gender, and Sexuality She begins by explaining the origins of the project and her interest in feminism and the development of liberal thought in America. We move on to break down her new book's primary arguments about the child-adult dualism and its deployment by leaders in 19th century American political movements. Near the end of the conversation we offer some thoughts about the implications of her findings for feminism and childhood in the present. Our conversation is about 28 minutes. Enjoy. So Corey, let's begin with you. Could could you tell me a little bit about your intellectual journey, the journey that brought us the struggle for equal adulthood?
1: Sure, I'm happy to. Um, it was very much a surprise where it ended up. I did not think that I was going to write about the history of childhood or adulthood when I started. Um, in graduate school, I wanted very much to write something about 19th century women's rights activists. Uh, these folks are very well studied, but I thought that there was more to say about their ideas and strategies. Uh, particularly how they connected public to private forms of power. So I started reading through the primary sources, and what really struck me was how often these key intellectual leaders of the movement talked about aging and old women. So from Mary Wollstonecraft to Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Cady Stanton to Frances Harper, these activists and intellectuals kept talking about how old women face neglect or contempt. So in graduate school, I started a project on feminist aging, thinking that I was going to write about middle and old age. But then I quickly realized that these feminist concerns were really much broader, that these activists were really focused on that troubled line between childhood and adulthood. And they thought that women had difficulty growing old with dignity because, in a very real sense, women never grew out of childhood in the same way as men. So I realized that this story centered on the question of what distinguished a child from an adult and how the transition from childhood to adulthood intersected with gender and race and class and other categories.
0: So age became for you something other than a feature of a writer or a thinker? some way to position them, but it became an idea that they were marshalling to form their ideas, something that seemed to cut across other important divisions, a discursive feature. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I'm not trying to say that the women's rights movement is really about adulthood. It's not. It's a very diverse movement uh, with many political goals. What strikes me is the way that 19th century uh, Americans used the distinction between childhood and adulthood to connect public and private forms of power. So it wasn't simply an idea. It was also a way of explaining experience, the way in which many black men and women of all types felt infantilized in many different arenas. That they could not claim the respect that was accorded adult white men, either in public or in private. So, by returning to this question of what made someone an adult, they were able to express these connections between public and private in really productive ways. And that's why I think it was a powerful idea that people kept coming back to.
0: Let's let's turn to your thesis. What the the, the key phrase here is that you is equal adulthood, but what? You know, what is the struggle for equal adulthood and why, why should we care about it?
1: Okay, so the term equal adulthood is... My own. I kept trying to find language in the primary sources that I could use to refer to this concept. But the problem was that the way people talked about maturity changed very much over time. So in the 18th century, for instance, Mary Wollstonecraft was very focused on the development of reason. By the 1840s, Frederick Douglass is really focused on the significance of age 21. Yet they were invoking a common idea. And I came up with this phrase, Equal adulthood, which is my own term, to refer to a really broad range of arguments, all of which boil down to the basic contention that all human beings, regardless of race or sex, should be able to claim the same rights, opportunities, and respect as they age. Mm
0: -hmm. So this is what I mean by
1: equal adulthood. Um, So why should we care about it? Well, I think that when we look at equal adulthood, there there are three things that really come to the fore. So first, uh, by focusing on adulthood rather than gender or race per se, we can really see how African-American activists stood at the center rather than on the margins of American feminism. Now, many white feminists were racist. I'm not arguing with that point. In fact, I'm adding to that point. But Mm -hmm. black feminists contributed really key ideas to the mainstream of American feminism. And in particular, we can look at how black men were really the first to protest the use of chronological age to define white manhood suffrage. They asked, aren't we men? And then black and white women broaden this claim to ask, aren't we adults? So in short, this question of equal adulthood, who could claim adulthood, was an issue that cut across the color line in 19th century America. And I think that that's really important to look at. Uh, second, I argue that by analyzing arguments for equal adulthood, we can see the intersection of public and private forms of power in a new way. So a number of historians have very productively used the distinction between public and private to analyze the condition of women in the 19th century. But there's, a, a, there's another strain of thinking that these activists were really concerned with how public and private forms of power overlapped and intersected. And by talking about adulthood, they could raise those issues because they argued that many white men used their status as adults to claim personal liberty, sexual power, economic op- opportunity, and political rights all of which they denied to children and people whom they saw as childlike. Yeah. Okay, So that's the second thing. And then finally, I think that when we look at the ideas and strategies that women's rights activists used to fight for equal adulthood, it enables us to better understand both their collaborations and their conflicts. So at certain times, uh, particularly in the late 1840s, Activists fought to apply age qualifications equally to all citizens, and this was a very inclusive way of understanding adulthood. But then at other times, uh, most notably during the later years of Reconstruction, they ended up infantilizing each other, sort of arguing that some adults were more mature than others. And this latter approach did much more to divide than to unite those who remained disenfranchised. So I think this gives us a new lens on collaboration and conflict within the movement.
0: Yeah, and and again, this is um, I'm kind of running it with with it in a in a direction that maybe says more about my concerns than your own. So that's kind of what happens. <laughs> like exchange, but I but when you when you when you're speaking there, when I was reading the book as well, but what you're saying seems consistent with this point, and that would be that that ideas aren't properties of groups, and that by focusing on ideas. We could then see the way that, you know, terribly uh, caustic racist statements and assumptions by, let's say, uh, an Elizabeth Cady Stanton or some other uh, uh, white feminist in the mid 19th century would not mean that her thought or her ideas or what she's pulling upon aren't extremely important for uh, African American. Um, activists who are trying to make claims in another area that that ideas don't they're not packed together as a as a monolith that they can be separated out and that they don't belong to groups or another way to say it is that um, John Locke might not be intending at all to open up a sort of universalist dialogue for liberation um, when he's writing um, an essay on human understanding. And that might be really clear if we read this, the second treatise on government, that there's a real exclusiveness, but there might be an undergridding psychology which connects those two texts that he doesn't own and isn't in control of. And so the inherent, you know, sexism in what Locke is doing doesn't mean that Locke is unimportant for later feminists.
1: I think that's exactly right, and I think that we see this circulation of ideas really clearly when we look at issues around childhood and adulthood, because all human beings grow old. So Mm -hmm. these people were asking questions about what happens as we grow old? Why can some people claim rights and opportunities and respect that other people can't? And by asking a common set of questions – and all reading John Locke, I mean, both Stanton and Douglas would have read Locke, they're engaging in a debate, and it's certainly not that they always agree with each other, but they're borrowing and stealing ideas from each other all the time, and I think that that's really important to recognize.
0: And as historians, it's important for us to understand that it's not that the actors aren't doing things that will direct the history of change, Right but that, that they can't control what all of the implications of their ideas will be. That's exactly right. Yep. And and that it's really important for us, since we have the advantage of time, to try to put back together how it happened in a way that was beyond the intentions of the speakers. Yes. Yeah. And
1: it's also important, too... Uh, use the tools of intellectual and social history together and see how these ideas do get put into practice uh, in these political struggles. Um, you know, they're not just ideas, they also become actions and strategies. Yeah,
0: exactly or that or that uh, we can't insulate. Uh, speech and ideas from exactly. action; that they are actions themselves.
1: Especially when we think of what makes someone a child or an adult, right? That's both an idea and an experience and a way of acting in the world.
0: Sure. Um, I enjoyed your exploration of multiple meanings of maturity or the multiplicity of the idea of the uh, maturity. Could Could you review some of the different or prominent or important ways that maturation Uh, The idea of maturity came to operate in 19th century political discourse in America?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. I think this is very important, uh, particularly because we've had so much wonderful work on the history of childhood as both an idea and experience but much less on the history of adulthood. I think adulthood is the longest stage of life. It's the most normative. So it's been hard for historians to really look at adulthood as a specific stage of life in the same way that they've investigated childhood or old age. And I think it's time for us to do that, because if we leave adulthood as an unmarked norm, instead of a specific life stage, the meaning and experience of which changes over time, we can't fully understand childhood either, right?
0: It becomes invisible. Exactly. And our, our, our job is to make the things that are uh, common sense visible.
1: Exactly. Uh, so I think my contribution to that right now, is to trying to understand adulthood as a, a stage of life, was that I noticed three very different ways that these activists talked about maturity. And they often switch between these three in one political speech. So these are not mutually exclusive, but I think it's helpful to isolate them analytically. Uh, So first they used chronological age, usually age 21, to draw a sharp line between childhood and adulthood. And this understanding of age became much more common in the first decades of the 19th century as state governments used age 21 to define white manhood suffrage as both a political right and a right of passage for white men. So this way of defining adulthood as something that begins at age 21 was in some ways the most straightforward. I think it's the easiest to recognize and understand. But in many ways, it was actually the most slippery and difficult, because in the antebellum period, everyone recognized that chronological age was an artificial distinction, and indeed that many people didn't even know how old they were, Mm -hmm. even as they thought that democratic governments absolutely had to rely on age to draw a line between childhood and adulthood. So... Looking at chronological age as a boundary between childhood and adulthood reveals a lot about how categories come to be placed on the body and how they come to be understood. Um, so that this question of chronological age is the first way that people understood maturity. It happens at a specific point. Okay, so second, in 19th century America, many people conceived of adulthood as a journey or a voyage. Now, childhood, to be sure, was also part of this voyage. But Americans thought that a child depended upon others for guidance. An adult was someone who navigated his or her own voyage of life alone. So if chronological age drew attention to the transition between childhood and adulthood, navigating the journey of life drew attention to the individual development over that broad span of adulthood. And then third, both mainstream politicians and women's rights activists often describe maturity in terms of family relations. So state legislatures celebrated a democratic vision of family relations in which every white son grew up to be the political and social equal of his father. Black men and women asked why they couldn't, too, become the equals of adult white men. But then this raised very uncomfortable questions about how to – how to both identify with metaphorical or actual white fathers, while also remaining loyal to white mothers or enslaved parents. And I think there were no clear answers to this in the 19th century, and I even argue there aren't clear answers to this today.
0: What are, what are some of the maybe most important fault lines in terms of the hierarchical measures of maturity? Okay,
1: so what I mean by the hierarchical measures of maturity is basically this idea that, you know, some adults are more mature than others, right? So either because they're more educated, economically independent, capable, or racially superior, they have a better claim to maturity. And usually often make that claim to maturity on the grounds of protecting or guiding other people who are less mature. So in the 19th century, uh, men often argued that they were more mature than women because they protected dependent wives and children. White women often argued that they were superior to people of color because they were members of a more highly developed race. And then by the 1870s, some older white women begin to argue that they're more mature than young white women because they had more experience with political activism. So these hierarchical measures of maturity – Um, They shift, but I think that they are so toxic to the women's rights movement. Um, These ideas circulated widely in 19th century America from the celebration of manhood citizenship through racial science and into the development of sociology. When women's rights activists tried to use these hierarchical measures to promote their own interests, they ended up in and alienating other people and destroying coalitions that could have otherwise fought for um, shared goals.
0: In your your introduction, you observed um, that the salience of age in the debates over suffrage is surprising, given that previous historians have argued that age had little relevance in, in daily life in the 19th century. And when I read this, I had two thoughts, and I'd like you to comment on them. One was, might your findings suggest that we need to think about age and the importance of age in a way that can't be captured by methods that look at daily life. And then the second thing is, might one way of interpreting the significance of your finding about suffrage be that feminism, anti-slavery discourse, other revolutionary bodies of thought building from the late 18th century were part of a force that helped create sensitivity to age?
1: So the second question is is easier in some ways, and I would say yes, certainly. But with this caveat, and there needs to be so much more research on the historical significance of age, but as a preliminary finding, what I would say is when I look at 18th century writers, maturity has become very significant. But age is still somewhat muted because of the emphasis on property and being the head of household as what someone fully independent. I think there is a major shift in the early 19th century in the United States when state governments abolish property requirements for the suffrage and leave age in place. And I think this is what really turns attention to chronological age. And then to answer your first question, second, I wouldn't say that I'm... uh, uh, What's interesting to me is that I think Kat and Tudokoff are exactly right, that age consciousness is in some ways very undeveloped in antebellum America at the moment that state governments suddenly make chronological age the main qualification for full citizenship. And what I think is going on that I find absolutely fascinating is that it's precisely because everybody acknowledges that chronological age is so arbitrary that you really cannot At a polling place, if a young man is 19 or 21, the officials admit that they can't tell. (laughs) There are these cases where they, you know, we can't really reliably read age on the body. It's recognized as arbitrary. Mm -hmm. At the same time, everybody thinks, even the most radical champions of universal suffrage, recognize that infants cannot be trusted with the vote. That's absurd, right? So everybody says that we need to have age limits. And this notion of chronological age as both arbitrary and necessary is what I think gives it such political power. Because what I see come Reconstruction is that the notion that everybody's come to accept chronological age as a necessary but arbitrary limit then becomes fodder for people who want to defend other limits that may be just as arbitrary. So politicians begin to acknowledge that perhaps race and sex are just as arbitrary as age. But we've all accepted age as a necessary but arbitrary distinction. And so we come to accept the whole idea of limiting suffrage to certain people and denying it to others. Does that that make sense?
0: It does. It makes me think of a lot of different things because I'm – picture yourself at a polling booth, when you don't have the apparatus that makes age about the only thing you can really know about everybody. That's when right. Age is so well documented. Today, right. it, is, right. it is the one thing we, we can grab onto. And right. when everything else seems liminal, yep. we can sort people by age and feel you know at least it's done. But yeah. so what's
1: fascinating to me in the development of democracy is that all of these state legislatures choose age as the barrier to full citizenship before anybody can really document their
0: age, right? Yeah, exactly. Because the, be the, the techniques that make it so clear-cut develop after, after the yes. ideas.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which I find fascinating, and I think there needs to be a lot more work on the significance of
0: that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, – well, that's, um, that's interesting. Final question. I, part of what you conclude or show, really, in the, in the um, uh, book is that the struggle for equal adulthood uh, fails in the 19th century. Um, my question is, does the same argument succeed in the 20th century? In what sense, yes or no? And what might the implications of that be for childhood in the 20th century? Right,
1: and also for the ongoing, I I mean, I would also think of, I have been thinking about what it means for the future of feminism. Um, So in one sense, you know, by the 1960s, a century after my vote ends, black men and all women had won the right to vote at age 21. They'd won legal access to the various seniority systems that organize universities and corporate jobs. So in some sense, there's a kind of formal equality based on age, Uh, in America today. But I think if you look deeper, people of color and women are still very much struggling with how to grow up and grow old on the same terms as white men. So, you know, a lot of feminists write about unrealistic beauty standards that lead women more than men to try to look young, to value youth, youthful beauty as the key. You know, many women think youthful beauty is really still what wins them respect in our culture and that that's something very important to preserve. Um, more significant to my mind is the way in which the gender wage gap in the United States is really largely an age gap. So women now earn about what men earn until they reach their mid-30s, when men's wages begin to grow much faster than women's. Mm -hmm. Many commentators today see this as a matter of personal choice, that women choose to take time off to have children. But 19th century feminists saw this issue as much more systemic, they thought that men were able to win respect financial reward and power for the experiences that they gained over time. Well, women were often classified or seen as losing uh, respect and financial security as they reached middle age and grew older. And I think we need to pay much more attention um, to what how age is working uh, today. And then finally, I think there's this persistent question of what makes an adult independent. So the rhetoric about welfare dependency and particularly the false charge that people of color are are more likely to be dependent in the United States than white people, I think it shows that we've still got a long way to go in recognizing all adults as equal. So I guess I've thought of that more honestly than what I think it means for childhood today, which probably shows the roots of this project when you ask about my intellectual journey. Um, you've probably thought about childhood more than I have. What do you think it says about childhood today?
0: Well, I... I I mean, one thing that occurs to me is that it, you have to kind of operate in, with the discursive materials that you have, which are still heavily age graded. But if you were to ask people, for example, about, uh, reducing the age to vote to 16, mm-hmm. I think that would be extremely difficult for a lot of North Americans to, uh, contemplate. There seems to be, uh, a, a almost intensifying sense of the incapacity of uh, youths to participate in economy and society and a growing defense of age segregation throughout the late 20th and early 21st century. It's not clear to me. I mean, it's a dangerous game to get into predictions. For example, there was a Of course, peanut butter has been removed from schools because of risk to allergies in a lot of school districts. I think that's fine. I mean, it's a complicated debate about risk. But peanut butter is not removed, obviously, from other institutions. And the assumption, the difference is, is there's assumption about the competency of children who both have the uh, allergy and do not have the allergy to behave appropriately relative to the food. I think there's some image that right. there's a peanut butter sandwich, peanut butter is going to end up on everybody in the room. And I really think that's in people's imagination. But what was amazing to me is that in, in the school district that my, my children go to, um, there was a banning of not peanut butter. That is all of the non-peanut butter projects that look like peanut butter. And the argument was that there would be no way for the adults to easily tell what was peanut butter and what was not peanut butter. <laughs> oh, dear. And so the, the level of restriction isn't just things like voting, right, right. for 16-year-olds, right. let's say. But it's something on the degree of not letting elementary school students have an item that is not dangerous because the adults – can't tell whether it is or whether it is not, That's and those extreme—we talk about the word infantilization. Those extreme forms of control, I think, are a real problem for youth mm-hmm. because they work against—they work against all, even an age graded notion of development. They, they get into areas that you almost have to say are absurd. That's right. I do think there's some absurdity in the sort of denial of uh, participation and responsibility for young people.
1: Mm-hmm. I think one thing I'd add that um, you, you talk about how we are so sure today about people's ages because it's so well documented, and I, that's absolutely true. At the same time, I think there is an awareness that age is still something that's very hard to determine. I think of you know my University of Virginia is clearly awash in fake IDs, and there are a whole no, lot no, of no, 18-year-olds no. that are 21 every weekend uh, online. I think people are, uh, lie about their ages all the time. So, sure. you know, I think there are ways in which age remains both, um, as you say, just ever increasingly important in who we recognize as independent and who we think isn't. And at the same time, there's still very easy to fudge, right?
0: Yeah, that, well, because there's a lot at stake in it. Exactly. So, so you understand. know, some
1: of those kids who can't eat peanut butter may well have some online identity where they're pretending depending to be 21 for all we know, right? I mean.
0: I, this has been an uh, an enjoyable conversation for me, and I'm really I'm really appreciative.
1: Well, thank you. This was great.
0: See you out in British Columbia.
1: Okay. Thanks so much, Pat.
0: Take care of yourself. Bye. Bye.